pointing towards for this week was something to the effect of the servant in the wilderness. And as I got digging into this passage and and looking and studying, if you look at this week's bulletin, you'll notice that it says recognition of the Messiah. Now, that's the thing about sermon titles is I can change them because, you know, I just make those up anyway. But as I was studying and looking at this, I wanted to emphasize what Mark emphasizes. And I I talked about this a little bit. As we go through the book of Mark, we're going to see a lot of action a lot of things taking place. We, we are actually going to come across the very first time that he uses the and immediately such and such begins taking place. And, and Mark is all about the action and the storyline and what's going on. And so I, I changed the title to reflect that a little bit. See, John the Baptist, as we saw back in verse 4 of Mark 1, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness and he was preaching baptism and re- of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And in the section that we're getting to, Jesus goes to John and is baptized by him. And then Jesus is going to go out into the wilderness and be tempted by Satan. And and we're going to dig into a lot of those. And so he is in the wilderness through these things. And yet the real focus of this section isn't the location that Jesus is in, but what he's doing. What's going on? And this is Jesus coming on the scene and being recognized as the Messiah. And yet, one of the other themes, one of the other things that happens so often in the book of Mark is Jesus is going to tell people, now don't talk about it yet. Don't, don't say anything yet. Don't announce who I am. Don't spread this about. And so what we end up seeing happen multiple times as we go through is kind of this revealing of who Jesus is and then concealing it and saying, the time's not quite right for this to be publicly announced and to be spread all over the place. And so as, as you go see through, you're going to see a revealing and a concealing happening back and forth. And that's, that's one of the themes that takes place and that comes up multiple times as we go through the book of Mark. So I've, I've entitled this one, The Recognition of the Messiah. And we are aware that he shows up and he displays who he is. But then in the book of Mark, it's kind of, now, now keep it quiet for now. For now. There will come a time when this is, is just broadcast everywhere. But for now, not yet. And, and it's a fascinating thing. Um, just, just like I mentioned that idea of immediately this and immediately that and immediately these things, so also Mark is going to have this revealing and concealing that takes place. Well, let's go ahead and read the section that we're studying this morning and then we'll dig into it a little bit. In Mark chapter 1, we're picking it up in verse 9, verses 9 through 13. It says, And it came about in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately, coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opened and the Spirit like a dove descending to him. And a voice came out of the heavens, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. And immediately the Spirit impelled him out to the, into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan, And he was with the wild beasts, and the angels were ministering to him. And it came about in those days. Obviously, the first question to ask, well, what days? What's he talking about? Well, this is connected back with what we just looked at with John the Baptist. So we're going to go back and and take just a quick look. I'm going to skim through this and read off certain portions. As I already read in verse 4, John the Baptist 
appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea was going out to him, and all the people of Jerusalem, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Tells a little bit about who John was in verse 6. He was clothed with camel's hair. He wore a leather belt around his waist. His diet was locusts and wild honey. And he was preaching and saying, After me, one is coming who is mightier than I. And I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. It's the style of Mark to pack a ton of stuff into just a few words. That, that previous section is kind of an introduction, and yet we saw that, that it's showing us who John the Baptist is, that John the Baptist is the fulfillment of prophecy, that he's on the scene not just accidentally, but he's, he's doing certain things, he's proclaiming the Messiah, he's letting it be known, and yet it, it's the introduction to what we're about to go into, and it came about in those days. What days? The days that John the Baptist was back there preaching and proclaiming and doing these things. And so don't, don't think that that previous thing is only an introduction. Please, please don't misunderstand me there. But it does introduce what we're digging into this week and what we're looking at with who Jesus is. So it wasn't just an introduction, and yet it sets up this situation perfectly to let us know what's going on. Now, we saw there... Judea and Jerusalem, we're about to see Nazareth, uh, Nazareth and Galilee and the Jordan. And I don't know about you, but I'm a very um, visual type learner. So I've asked Elsha, if you would, to go ahead and put a map up so we can get an idea of, okay, where are all of these places? In one of the pre-studies that I gave out previously, I mentioned you ought to reference a, uh, a map and just kind of familiarize yourself, get an idea of where some of these things are. But I want to I take a moment and uh, take a look at this map. Um, I know all of the words aren't necessarily clear, and it's a, a larger map, but you'll notice down here we have Judea. That's the area towards the south that Jesus uh, is going to end up coming to. That's where all of the people were coming out of Judea to John the Baptist. In Judea is the set town of Jerusalem. It's directly above the D. Do you have a, a pointer that I could use back there, Mark? I should have thought of that before I got up here. That would make it a lot easier. <clears throat> Thank you. All right. You, you are. You have a tendency to. All right. Jerusalem is right about here uh, in Judea. And so that's where John the Baptist is, kind of down in this region but this is the Jordan River. Now, for those of you who are very um, geographically attuned, you'll know that uh, the Dead Sea or the Salt Sea is right down here. The Sea of Galilee is up here. The region around Galilee is referred to Galilee. So these are the, the places and locations that are going to be coming up quite a bit through the book of Mark. It would be good to familiarize yourself with the various towns that are listed around the Sea of Galilee. Obviously, you can't read them very well here, but that's where Jesus is going to spend the bulk of the time during the book. Um, long about this area is where Nazareth is. Whoop, I'm a little far north, sorry. About this area is where Nazareth is. So, in this passage, we find that Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. What we saw previously was that John was somewhere down in this region. Now, we don't know exactly where John was baptizing. There's a lot of speculation, there's a lot of discussion, there's a lot of argument, 
But one thing to be aware of, there's this area called Samaria that's right in between. And if you, if you know your Old Testament history, you know the, the stories at the time of Christ, you realize that they didn't necessarily get along really well with the Israelites down in Judea, nor the people up in Galilee. There's a lot of history there. I'm not going to go into all of it. It's not that they were at war, but they weren't really friendly with each other. And that goes back about 400 years prior because the Sumerians, Samaritans, were Israelites that were captured and taken away and interconnected uh, with their culture with the Assyrians. And then they came back, and, and the people in the south and the people in the north kind of look at them as, as half-breeds. They're not real Jews. They're not real Israelites. And, and there's some bad blood between them, obviously for cultural reasons and, and understandable. But so what would happen, what tended to occur is that people would come from Galilee and they didn't want to go through Samaria. So they would cross the Jordan and come down and then cross over again to get to Jerusalem, which is down here. Now that becomes very important in a lot of the stories and the, the accounts that take place in the book of Mark, just being familiar with some of that. If John is in the southern part, which I, I think is very likely because uh, it says that people were coming from Judea and Jerusalem out to him, He's somewhere in the southern part. Jesus would normally take about a 60-mile trip if he's going from, or it, it's, it is 60 miles from Nazareth to come down to Jerusalem. But because of that bad blood, a lot of the time, people would not go straight down the middle. Now, this, this really comes up to play in some of the other accounts that happen, like in the book of John. But what, what they would do is cross over, come down, and then to Jerusalem, and rather than a 60-mile trip, it becomes something more like a 100-mile trip. Now, you've got to remember, they didn't have cars, they didn't have trucks, they didn't have planes. This was walking the whole way. So you're not quite doubling the length of the trip to be able to make that detour to stay out of Samaria. Now, we don't know exactly which route Jesus took for this particular trip. There are other times in which it does explain a little bit more. But he comes from Nazareth and he meets John somewhere on the Jordan River, probably in this vicinity. Now, one of the reasons that I like this map is it shows us there's this mountainous range that comes along here. And so he's hiking, he's walking out in not exactly the easiest, most traveled area. Um, and yet, all of the Jews had to make an annual trip to Jerusalem. And so there are a lot of different ways and a lot of different things that come up in regard to that. So it came about in those days, while John was baptizing in the Jordan River, that Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan River. <clears throat> now, this really ought to raise a question in your mind. Why? Why is Jesus being baptized? Well, I think a big part of that is, what is baptism? What's going on with baptism? Why is that happening? And I, I think that we need to take a little bit of time and, and step back and examine that very question. So let me, let me ask you, what is, in your mind, the purpose of baptism? Okay. Public testimony, I think, is what I heard. Public, a public display. And so <clears throat> John... 
it says, was preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Does that mean that Jesus needed to go out and be baptized for the forgiveness of his sins? I, I should hear a loud and resounding no, or at least rattle your brain a little bit. No, because Jesus is perfect. Jesus is the Son of God. He never sins. Well, wait a minute. Why is he going out to John to be baptized? See, we have this tendency to, to hear certain biblical words that come up and just assume that they mean what we're used to, what we always think about it. I, I mentioned last week the, the term itself just means to dip, to submerge or immerse. That's, that's what it means. So why was John out in the wilderness baptizing people? Why was he in the Jordan River baptizing people? Well, it, it tells us that he was doing that uh, while preaching about repentance and forgiveness of sins. And so what was happening, people would go out to him, they would identify themselves with this message that John is preaching and proclaiming. And they would say, you know, that repentance that you say that I need, we talked about repentance last week, it's, it's this idea of going one way and realizing that's not the way I need to be going. I'm doing an about face, taking off in the other direction. And, and they would say, you know what, that's what I need. That's what my life needs. And they would identify with the message that John was saying, and they would confess their sins. They would acknowledge, hey, I was going the wrong way, and I need to fix that. But Jesus doesn't fit that. That's not why Jesus is baptized. And yet the whole purpose of baptism is this idea of identification. And so what, what's happening is with John's baptism, people are identifying with the message that he's preaching and that he's proclaiming. Jesus is identifying with, but not saying, well, I need that because I have to for be forgiven. But he's saying, you know, the message that John has been proclaiming, that's the message I'm going to be proclaiming. That's the same idea, the same concept is this um, identification, not only with that message, but also with the one who sent John as the messenger. We, we saw that John was sent by God to proclaim the way to make ready for the coming Messiah. And so this is, is all part of the, um, the preparation and the sending out of Jesus as that Messiah. And Jesus is identifying himself with that. Baptism is for identification, not for salvation. It's ceremonial. It's declaring. Yes, sir. We're, yeah, yeah, we're going we're gonna to get to that as well in just a moment. <clears throat> it's, it's not that baptism affects anything, e effects, brings about, causes to be. For us, it's about obedience. God has commanded us, if we trust Christ, that we are to be baptized. It's two separate things. It's not that we are baptized for salvation. It's because we've been saved, we are to be baptized. And, and there's a lot more uh, discussion that could go along with that. But for us, the main thing is it's an act of obedience, identifying ourselves with Christ. Well, Jesus, it was also an act of obedience because, as Dennis, being one step ahead of me, points out, it's fulfillment of prophecy as well. And so Jesus is there not just um, in order to identify with what John's talking about, but to be obedient to the plans that God had laid out and what God had in store. And so <clears throat> um, John had, had declared already that Jesus was better than him. The, we saw that back in verse 7 and 8. Um, After me is one coming who is mightier than I, 
I'm not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I baptize you with water. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Um, but in other places in the, the Gospels, we find out that this has been prophesied, that it is coming up, that it's to be expected. And so Jesus is fulfilling all of those things by going and being baptized by John. He didn't do it for the sake of forgiveness of his own sins, but to identify himself with the message that John was saying, with the, um, repent, or the, the forgiveness that comes with repentance, and as a preparation and fulfillment of prophecy of who Jesus was going to be and what he needed to be doing. We then come across this, this phrase that Mark loves to use, and immediately. <clears throat> and he uses it something like 42 different times in the in his gospel, and it, it sets up a really good dividing point. And so up, up to this point has been introduction, has been setting the, the scene, has been getting ready for this. Now, just because it's introduction, as I said, don't think that the, what came before is, is of minimal or less value. It's not. But it's preparing us and getting us ready to see what's about to happen. And Mark starts off and he says, immediately something happens. And immediately coming up out of the water... He saw the heavens open and the spirit like a dove descending upon him. And a voice came out of the heavens. Thou art my beloved son. In you I am well pleased. Jesus was coming up out of the water. Now, there's, there is some debate as, it, as he was being raised after being immersed or is it as he was climbing up the, the bank to get out of the water. Really doesn't matter. That's not what Mark's focusing on. It's, it's in that process, after he has identified himself with the message that this messenger has been sent to proclaim, he is coming out of the water, and Mark says he saw certain things. What, what are the things that he saw as he was coming out? That is an open question. Do what? The heavens being torn open. I, I thank you for phrasing it that way. That's one of the, the things about the English language and trying to to dig into these. It's, it's the heavens opening, but it's the heavens being torn open. The word there is, is like rent open. Torn is a, is a great one. It's actually the same word that Mark's going to use again at the end of the Gospel of Mark. Um, in chapter 15, verse 38, he's going to talk about the, um, the veil that's in the temple being torn, being rent open. And I, I think that Mark chooses his words very carefully and that he's bookending this with a starter of what Jesus is getting ready to do and a conclusion that Jesus has now opened the way. But what it says here is that he looked up, or that, that he was coming up out of the water and he saw the heavens being torn, being rent, being, being opened up. Now, the heavens here... Um, again, I think Mark is very selective in his words. It is a plural, meaning the heavens, which is, is interesting as we study about what is heaven and what's going on there. Heaven is described in three different ways as the, the atmosphere, the air around us, also as outer space, also as the dwelling place of God. And so that's, that's kind of the three heavens that are, are mentioned throughout Scripture and I, I think that Mark is selecting that word, that plural, both because that was the traditional way of, of referencing that, but also as a recognition that, that Jesus is seeing all of this being torn open so that God himself is able to do certain things. Well, what's the second thing that Jesus sees happen? The Spirit 
descending on him as a dove, like a dove. <clears throat> there's, there's a lot of debate and discussion that goes on with that. What do you picture when you think of the Holy Spirit? What comes to mind? Most people are going to say this, a dove. It says that he came as a dove, and yet it's very clear that it's the Holy Spirit. So is it that, that the appearance, the shape, was like a dove? Or was it the process of him flying down, kind of fluttering? Have you ever seen a, a dove getting ready to land? There, it's, it's an interesting, specific way in which he comes down. Now, in the Gospel of, of uh, Luke... It does express, Luke 3, verse 22, it does say that he came down in bodily form. And so somehow there's a, a physical appearance of the Holy Spirit coming down to Christ and landing on him. And then in the Gospel of John, we see that he stays on him. And so how this looks like a dove, I'm not exactly positive. I, I think that we sometimes overemphasize the, that the Holy Spirit is a dove and, and that that's not quite the right picture that we ought to be having. But that the Holy Spirit comes down in that way, somehow giving the impression or the, the appearance like or as a dove, in which he comes down to Jesus. And then what's the, the third thing that happens here? I, I, um, in the pre-study I said that there were certain things that Jesus saw or perceived and, and one of the things that happens is, is we hear something. He perceives that a, a voice happens. And what, what is that? What's the voice say? Okay. You are my, my son, my beloved son. And there's an emphasis on this. That it's, it's not just this is, is somebody, but he's a very special, very intimate, a beloved son. Now, the heavens were rent open, were torn open. And we see the Spirit physically in some way coming down to Christ. And we see, hear this voice declaring from heaven, You are my beloved Son. Not just a, a random individual, but a specific um, beloved individual, a beloved Son. <clears throat> and then, not only a Son, but in you I am well pleased. Now, I, I started looking at that one and pondering, and I'm like, why, why does he say that? Why, why would he put it that way? What, what do you think? If you've, if you've read through this, if you've studied this, why would, would God make that declaration? Okay, because Jesus has been obedient. Okay, that's, that's a really good connection. What else? Okay, okay. Kind of admiring what... Yeah, okay. <clears throat> I think that there are, are several things going on, and several, several reasons that he does this. Oh, go ahead. Okay. 
Okay. I, I think that, that all of these are, are components or parts of it. We see that, that Jesus has been obedient. And, and a father can really be happy about that. I know when my kids do what they're supposed to do, that does make me happy. And I, I want to recognize that. I want to declare that, hey, this is, my, this is my kid. I'm happy. I'm proud of him. You know, sometimes when they don't necessarily do, I, I may have a tendency to not necessarily want to claim them as my own. Maybe that's just my own personal failings. But I, I think that that's part of it. But also, I think that there's a level of, uh, I told you that this is recognition of the Messiah. I think you mentioned that, letting it be known, proclaiming it. Now, that is one where it's a little bit interesting in Mark, he makes no mention of anyone else hearing or seeing any of these things. In uh, John one thirty-two, we recognize that John saw it. And so, likely, there were others who, who either heard or saw these things going on, but we don't know exactly how many. Um, it, it may not have been that the entire multitude that was out there recognized what was happening. But we know at least Jesus saw it and John saw it. And saw that it was happening. I think there's also a component, and and this is this is my thought on it. I think that there's a component in which God is commissioning and getting Jesus ready for what He's going into. What is Jesus about to do? He's about to go out into the wilderness. He's about to begin His ministry over the next roughly three years, and then He's about to die. Die a terrible death. Die a painful, agonizing death. A death in which God himself is going to turn his back. And it's a, a crazy thing that Jesus is getting ready to go into. And as he's beginning this, what is the declaration that comes? This is my beloved son. What kind of an impact might that have made, even, even to Christ, as he's getting ready for all of these things, to be reminded, you know, all, of, all that I'm about to endure is not separating me from God. God loves me. He's happy with me. He plans for these things. I am his beloved son. Now, I, I, again, I don't know that that's necessarily exactly why Jesus needed to hear that, but... Mark is making it known that Jesus is the one that Jesus is the one who hears this voice and that God is talking to him and letting it be known declaring this this is or you are speaking directly to him not that guy is but referring to Jesus you are my beloved son so whatever it is that he's heading into and about to do whether just for the fact that he is becoming uh, or beginning his, his public ministry or as assurance as he's going into some of the suffering and some of the difficult things, whatever the case is that Jesus is facing, God is declaring and letting him know, you are, you still are, even though you've, you've left heaven and you've, you've lived your 30-ish years on earth, even though all of this stuff, you are my beloved son. I am well pleased. I'm, I'm pleased in your obedience. I'm pleased in what you have already done. And I'm pleased in what you're about to do as you are fulfilling the prophecy, as you are fulfilling the purpose, the goal, the mission that I have sent you for. Again, I don't, I don't know specifically what it is, what that message is for Jesus. Like why, why is it that Jesus needed to hear that? 
And yet, Mark is recording it saying, hey, Jesus was being talked to directly by the Father. Now, there's an amazing thing that's going on here. We see Jesus is the Son of God. That declaration is made known. We also see the Spirit is descending, and we see from heaven a voice is being made. We call that the Trinity, and it's, it's not a major emphasis. It's not a, a main point that Mark is focusing in on, and yet he recognizes there's the Trinity. The, the triunity, the, the full being of God is represented right here in this element. As Jesus is being commissioned, as he's being sent, as he's starting his ministry, the whole Godhead is represented right here, getting him going into this process. And immediately, the Spirit impelled him. And wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I, I read through this, and he's, he's going on, and he's just made this declaration, you are my beloved son and you I'm well pleased. Jesus is on his way out of the water and immediately he's going off and doing something else. Like, but, but Mark, why aren't you telling us more? Why aren't you? What was Jesus' response to that? What was, what was his action? If others heard this, what, what did they think about it? What's going on with... Mark doesn't tell us. And I've, I've mentioned before, you know, sometimes I, I wish that the the authors would give us a little bit more, would explain some of these things, would tell us. And yet, on Wednesday night, this, this last Wednesday, we just studied the idea of the inspiration of Scripture, that God breathed out, that God gave us exactly what He wants us to have. And so, what God wanted Mark to record for us was just what's here, that Jesus was baptized by John in the Jordan, and as he was coming out, he saw these two things and he heard the voice. And then he's immediately impelled to go. And that's it. We don't know why or what the reactions were or who anybody else, what anybody else might have thought about it. Mark just keeps, keeps the story going, keeps the account continuing. And so he says immediately the spirit impelled him out into the wilderness. Now, I find that fascinating for several reasons. One, this word impelled, it's, it's a very forceful. It's the same idea as to drive him out and to, to force him into the wilderness. Now, I don't think that he's saying that Jesus was resistant and didn't want to go. There, there's no indication that Jesus wasn't wanting to follow through on God's plan. God just said, you are my beloved son, I'm pleased with you. And so we, we don't have indication that Jesus was resistive of going out as much as that the Holy Spirit was saying, you have to do this. This is required. This is, it's vital for you to go out. And he drives him out. And, and impels is the word here. It's, it's the same word actually that comes up when Jesus drives out demons. There's no choice. There's no other option. They have to go. Jesus, there was no other option, there was no other choice. He had to go out into the wilderness. Which, to me, maybe, I, I'm, I'm not sure if it's, if it's intentional or if it's just Isaac's mind, but it's interesting to me. We just had this, this peaceful little dove representation of, of the Spirit descending like a dove, and then that dove is casting him out, kicking him out, driving him out, because the Spirit descends on him, John says that he remains on him and then takes him out into the wilderness. And it is required. There is no, no question he must go into the wilderness. In other places we find that that's fulfillment of prophecy, that there's a lot going on there. But 
Mark, again, doesn't tell us very much about why Jesus is out there. What's going on? All it says is that he was, he, he existed, he, he stayed in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild beasts, and the angels were ministering to him. And that's really all that Mark tells us about it. Not a whole lot of information. Three, three things are going on. Um, he was, he was, they were. That's, that's the, the line of action that takes place. Jesus was, and that's the, the word is that he remained or he was in place in the wilderness. And he was there for 40 days. In other places we find out that, that while he was out there he didn't eat, he didn't have like sustenance, he was just fasting in the wilderness for 40 days. And then he was in the wilderness being tempted by Satan. Now, he just went from God opening the heavens, ripping open the heavens, declaring, this is my beloved son. You are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And he goes out into wilderness is a desolate place. Now, it's not real specific for what kind of desolation, but there's not a lot there. I, I, in my mind, I kind of picture eastern Oregon, or at least parts of it that I've driven through, where there's miles upon miles of nothingness. There's, there's a few trees, a little bit of grass. You know, Maybe something could live there, but, I mean, it's not a thriving great place where there's you know, farmland and, and wonderful stock and all of that type of stuff. It's, it's desolate. It's out, out in the middle of nowhere type of an idea. And he's, he's driven out there. But the Spirit went with him. The, the Spirit led him is the way that other uh, passages talk about it. Other uh, records of the Gospels talk about the Spirit led him. John, as I mentioned in John chapter 1, saw the Spirit descend and stay on him. And so he is taken out into the wilderness, into this desolate place, but the Spirit's still with him. We see uh, in, in the second half of verse 13, he was with the wild beasts. Now, this wild beast idea is not friendly little you know, sheep and dogs and, and friendly cats and domesticated animals. This is wild beasts. It, it doesn't specify what kind, but it can include things like the, the lions and the tigers and the bears. Oh, my. All types of, of wild animals. This doesn't sound like a great place to be. Just, just straight up physically, this isn't the desired location to go to. And so, again, he, he goes from God declaring, you are my beloved son and you I am well pleased, and he's driven out, he's forced to go into this desolate, dangerous, I mean, wild beasts all around. Would you want to spend the night where, where cougars and lions and all of that type of stuff could very easily, there's not a lot of food, there's not a lot of, and yet that's where he's at. And that's just the physical side. What did we, we skipped over a little bit that's really, really important? Being tempted by Satan. Now, Mark doesn't record any of the temptations. It doesn't tell us what those are. You can find those in other Gospels. It, it talks about, you know, temptation to eat food. I mean, Jesus, if you're all-powerful, you can make these uh, stones turn into bread, and, and then you wouldn't be hungry because you're fasting for 40 days. Mark doesn't talk about any of that. He just says that he was being tempted. That, that being tempted is a continuous idea. It's not just he went out, he faced a temptation, and then he moved on. He went out, 
He spent 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness, in a place that you don't want to be, with wild beasts all around, being constantly tempted by Satan. Now, I don't know about you, but personally, I don't like being tempted for very long at all. Uh, my, my general response is, God, just get me out of this. And yet, what does God promise to do? It says, with the temptation, we'll provide a way of escape, a way, a way through it, a way to endure it. Not to get out of it, but to, to go through and endure it. And that's what, what happens with Jesus, which really gives us a lot of hope, a lot of, a lot of comfort. See, Jesus had to do this. There was no choice. He was impelled or required by the Spirit. He was taken into this place intentionally. It was not a pleasant place. It was not a happy place. It was not somewhere that we would normally want to go. And yet, that's where Jesus is. And for 40 days, he's being tempted by Satan. He was with these wild beasts. But then, what else does it say? It says that the angels were ministering to him. That, that idea of ministering is, is like serving. Now, we know that he wasn't eating from the other passages, that he's out there fasting, but the word here is that same idea as, as a server who's bringing food. And, and so it's not that he was out there eating and the angels were bringing him food to eat, but that they were caring for him, taking care of him, helping him through this process. In Hebrews chapter 4, I do want to turn to this one. In Hebrews chapter 4, Mark kind of just ends it there. That's, that's the extent. He's, he's recording the facts. He's letting us know what happened. And there's tons going on. And, and we're going to go back to Mark here in just a minute. But I, I don't want us to miss something that is so vital and so important. As I already mentioned, I don't know about you, but I don't like being tempted five minutes or five days, let alone for 40 days. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, it's referring to Christ as the high priest. And, and the entire book of Hebrews is about how much better than anything else Jesus is. We get down to verse 15 and it says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are and yet without sin. Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So what's going on here? Let's, let's go back to Mark. Jesus has just been... Baptized. He's been commissioned to go out. He's been baptized. He's been uh, declared to be who he is. And the Spirit forces him, impels him, drives him into the wilderness. He's in the wilderness for 40 days. And through all of that, he's being tempted by Satan. The angels are ministering to him. It, it seems... <clears throat> that this is not a great place to be, not a desirable location. And yet, we find that if the Spirit descended and stayed on him, God is still with him. In other passages, we find how Jesus interacts with Satan and answers all of these temptations. What does he do? He quotes Scripture back at him. 
So Jesus is full of the word of God. He's just been commissioned. He knows who he is. God is with him, and he is able to go through this. Now, Mark doesn't make emphasis of the fact that Jesus doesn't sin during this part. And yet, we know that Jesus is completely and totally without sin. So the question that I would ask you is, how does Jesus get through this without sinning? How can we get through temptations without sinning? Jesus did it. He's the perfect example for us. And we are not left without a high priest who, who doesn't understand what we're dealing with. He dealt with those temptations. Now, you can read the big fancy theologians who will argue about this, that, and the other. about Well, Jesus couldn't have sinned, or could he have sinned, and it didn't. And Jesus was tempted in all ways like we are, and yet without sin. How was he able to do that? How did he go 40 days with Satan himself? Most of the time when we're tempted, it's not... You know, we, we may try and blame Satan, but it, it's our own lusts, our own desires that are drawing us away. How did Jesus do it without sin? Although that's true, that, that is true, he endured these temptations. And what did he do? Do what? To, to show us that we can. How, how can we get through these. We're not God. And yet, what, what are we finding with this idea? We can endure temptations in the same way that Jesus did. Jesus quotes scripture. Jesus was indwelled by the Holy Spirit. Jesus knew who he was and why God was doing these things and what the purpose was. When we face temptations, when we deal with this type of thing, we ought to have that same idea. What has God said about us? We're beloved. What has God given us to see us through temptation? We have his word. We have the example of Christ who did this without sin to show us that we can also go through it without sin. There's this tendency to think to ourselves, well, you know, I mean, I, I still mess up. I'm, I'm not perfect. I'm not. And yet, if Jesus was doing this as the example for us, showing us that we can do the same, we ought to be able to endure those 40 days or however long, those five minutes of temptation. What's the other thing that's going on? What does Jesus have that we also have? He had the Holy Spirit. The Spirit descended like a dove and remained on him. That's what John, um, I keep referencing it. Let me find the, John uh, 1 verse 32. The, the Spirit remained on him. And so it's not that Jesus was just doing this because he's this superhuman uh, God-man who's, who's able to do all of these things. Yes, he is God. I don't think that I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is that the tools that he had to be able to get through these temptations are the exact same tools that we have today. Jesus was commissioned and sent out by God. This is the start of everything he's going to be doing as the, the Messiah, as the promised one, is fulfillment of all kinds of, of prophecy. We saw that all the way back at the beginning of chapter 1. That's going to continue as you go through. Mark is going to reference and allude to all kinds of prophecy about who Jesus is. But in this, in this one little section, a, a section in which, like I said, sometimes I wish Mark would tell us more. He just very quickly lets it be known, and then he keeps going. 
And, and we're going to find out more stuff that happens shortly after. But in this, we see a recognition of the Messiah. We see a confession by Christ. Not, not that he had to confess sins, but that he aligned himself, that he identified himself through baptism. We see a commissioning of him in which God says, This is, you are my beloved son. I am well pleased in you. And he gets ready to send him out. And he does send him out to do certain things. And then the Messiah is challenged, directly challenged by Satan himself. He's tempted for 40 days. And how is he able to endure that? How is he able to, to make it through all of that? He does it by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the Word of God, by the exact same things that we have. As we face difficulties, as we face temptations, how can we respond? By recognizing that what Jesus did is the same thing that we're called to do. Endure the temptation, not, not run away and try and get out of it on our own power, but endure it so that we can fulfill what God has called us to do. There are times when we have to go through those things. And yet, just like Christ, we have the power and the ability given to us to be able to make it through these things. Let's pray. Dear Holy Father, Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the account that Mark gives of, of who Christ is, of recognizing him. And Lord, as we continue through this study of the book of Mark, may we, may we love learning more and more about Christ. In this one episode, this one example of Christ enduring temptation and being sent out and commissioned by you, Lord, may we draw closer to you. May we recognize that his temptation proves to us that we are also able to go through temptation. But Lord, it also sets Jesus up to do all of the things that you desire of him to do. So Lord, thank you for this time that we've had to study, to learn, and to be challenged by your word. May we draw closer to you and live for you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.